0: Hello and welcome to the Interfish podcast where we bring you the week's most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm editor Drew Cherry, joined today by senior business reporter Rachel Sapin. We are going to be talking about a new story that just was published in The New Yorker from journalist Ian Urbina and the Outlaw Ocean project that he heads. We're going to have Ian on the podcast a little later to talk about that. Uh, first up, though, we're going to talk a bit together, Rachel and I, about what we think some of the impact might be from this report. Uh, among the allegations that details are forced labor uh, in the China seafood processing sector, in particular related to North Korean employees, Um, Once again, um, the project has linked seafood companies in the West to the plants that are using this labor. And so there's been a lot of fallout and uh, will be much, much more. Rachel, you've been covering this story since the first investigation came out from Urbina and his Outlaw Ocean team. What was the initial reaction when the story came out last fall about uh, Uyghur forced labor in the seafood processing chain?
1: Yeah, I think it just hit the seafood industry, you know, like a bomb, to be honest. I think <laughs> any everyone was, you know, checking to see if they were on um, communication lists on the, on the Outlaw Ocean website where they're publishing, you know, uh, these transparent uh, email chains, basically email communications between staff at Outlaw Ocean and um, largely company uh, media representatives that are responding, you know, to this four-year investigation of um, the labor uh, involved in in producing seafood that goes from China into the United States. And that is a very murky area to begin with. So yeah, I think the best way to describe it is kind of like this bomb being dropped. And, you know, um, every seafood company has just been really in reaction mode since.
0: In the U.S. government, uh, some lawmakers have, uh, have taken or at least called for action. And is there any sense that there'll actually be any particular traction on that? And did that play, do you think, a role in the in the, uh, Russian, uh, seafood ban that we're, um, experiencing now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think this, uh, the Ella ocean reporting really fueled a lot of the, uh, legislative actions we're seeing by us lawmakers, largely from Alaska, but it is spreading to, to other, uh, lawmakers having interest in the United States. But yeah, I think just, um, the Those lawmakers really having kind of a platform to advocate, you know, issues they've been seeing with Russia for a long time uh, because Russia's had that ban on uh, imports of seafood into the U.S. since 2014. And, you know, Alaska lawmakers in particular have wanted the U.S. to do something about that when Russia can um, otherwise import seafood into the United States um, via China in part and i think that this outlaw ocean reporting uh just kind of gave them more fuel to work on some legislative actions the alaska congressional delegation really wanted uh to pursue um for probably even 10 years before this reporting came out
0: yeah i mean i i find it really interesting um the latest uh the latest report which we'll talk with urbina about here um, later in the podcast um, was, in, in many ways, I thought more devastating than the first story about the Uyghur forced labor. Um, it, it's uh, about North Korean forced labor. But, you know, I'm very curious what the reaction is going to be from companies, because it it's such a complicated supply chain, and it's so embedded in how seafood gets to our plates now. Um, b- by that, I mean China. Um, the a huge volume of the seafood that we uh, import in the United States and as well as in Europe comes via China. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see if companies actually step up and, and do anything. Um, some already have by dropping ties with suppliers, but I wonder if this is going to have any kind of lasting change. And um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think that's the question we all have, right? Because I think, you know, Outlaw Ocean talks about that a lot in this report and is what can be done if if these audits of companies in China and how their workers are treated are kind of this black box, you know, how do we address that? And I think that's going to be probably the focus of U.S. seafood companies going forward um, that really want to work on this issue Is is how can we Um, you know, have our supply chain actually transparent? How can we know what's actually going on with seafood that's being processed in China and that workers are being treated fairly and humanely? And yeah, I think it's just a big looming kind of question we all have. Um, But I think it's really cool that um, Outlaw Ocean really is getting the industry thinking about it, uh, getting us as a trade press thinking about it, uh, and you know, it they're important questions to ask. Whether we can answer how this is all going to get resolved right now or not.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think part of part of what's been interesting for for us, kind of as a reporting team, is we've been doing this a, a long, long time, and it is interesting how the Chinese processing sector just kind of becomes a sort of like step along the chain of how seafood gets to people's plates, and it's kind of. I think because it's such an expected and natural part of how seafood has been processed over the past few decades that it almost becomes uninteresting. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, and then you get audited and oh, yeah, then you process your fish in China. Um, But I think that, as you said, it sort of prompted us to say, wait a minute, let's understand this a little bit better. Let's understand who the companies are. I absolutely did not know uh, the names of the companies that they were working with. Um, a couple of them maybe sort of rang a bell, and I could name a very small handful of companies in China that process. And that says something. I mean, these are major, major companies. Um, in yeah. In the spirit of transparency, like we, everyone should know who these companies are. If you're proud of your supply chain, you should be able to say, "Yeah, this is who we, you know, this is who produces our, our products."
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel the same way. I didn't know the names of any of these companies. I'm still learning about a lot of them and about uh, some of the human rights issues in China. And uh, you're absolutely right. It's definitely been something we've kind of skirted over uh, when talking about, you know, transparency and sustainability and the supply chain. And I think it is something that the seafood industry, it's, it's not going to go away, even if, you know, this, kind of global reporting project turns elsewhere, um, you know, this is something that at this point lawmakers are focused on. Uh, we are in a kind of trade, uh, it just seems like a tense trade kind of time with China and Russia, which I think is going to fuel more looking into these issues and seafood, you know, is implicated in the trade from China and Russia as a global commodity. So yeah, I think it's not going to go away, and we probably do need to learn the names of these companies and you know what's actually going on as much as we can at them.
0: Yeah, and and there are I think whenever we're um, whenever we're talking about having products processed in China, that's going to come with a certain amount of risk and a certain amount of understanding that. There, there are things that um, that you are are not allowed to do as a citizen of um, the People's Republic of China, and that's just that's something that has to be expected if you're going to do business in China. Um, now, that said, I do think there are companies that are treating their workers fairly um, and, uh, that have probably, um, uh, that probably have some, um, some reactions and, and, uh, ways to document, Hey, look, we are doing it a particular way. We, you know, in a, in a, a way that meets Western standards, maybe, but if you are using those companies, if there are companies out there, they're doing it again in, um, you know, to, to actually make that known, to have those companies be, a a more visible part of the supply chain is only going to improve it for everybody. Um, the longer it's sort of these questions about who does what and who who it is that's processing and you've never heard of the name, you don't know who the ownership is, You, as long as it's not transparent, I think the seafood industry is going to have a really, really hard time saying, hey, I have a transparent traceable supply chain for my fish. And that's at the heart of providing a product that people can stand behind um, is being able to say, this is where it's been. This is who's producing it. This is who's processing it. Hey, we're, we're proud of this supply chain.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think you're right. I think we are going to see some language changes, right? And that has been an issue for seafood for a while. What is making it transparent? How do you know the audits are working you know, we've seen lawsuits on that front, uh, far outside of outlaw ocean. Uh, so I think I agree with you. I think it's just opened up kind of a whole new era of, you know, how are we going to actually define, define traceability and follow through on kind of marketing commitments that say this seafood, you know, was sourced without slave labor. And, I'm also fascinated to see what China is going to do in response. You know, are we going to have companies in China responding to this um, and seeing impacts um, to their how they are staffed or to their sales or how they are viewed in particular by U.S. consumers from this? Um, I'm just really interested in that, too, because I feel like we've just kind of had one side and maybe there's more to the story that we don't know yet, either
0: thanks Rachel. Well, joining us now is Ian Urbina. He's a journalist and founder of the Outlaw Ocean Project. Ian, thanks for joining us. The piece that came out this week in The New Yorker, the third of your series on China's seafood sector uh has already caused a major impact here in the seafood world um and I think a lot of companies are wondering, what can I do? How exposed am I, and how concerned should I be? about these violations happening in my supply chain. So I think there's been as much confusion as clarity for uh, for the industry, and so I'm hoping today that we can talk a little bit about what went into your investigation um, and just get a sense of, um, of, of what now are the next steps and who may step in to make something happen. So. Um, Let's just start there. Tell us a little bit about how long you've been working on this particular project of investigating the, the Chinese seafood supply chain and kind of how you assembled your team.
2: Yeah, so um, the this investigation um, is a four-year investigation. The reporting started about four years ago. Um, its ambition was to quite simply take a look at the largest and most consequential player when it comes to the oceans is clearly the Chinese um, writ large. And if you did drill down on that, you're talking about the Chinese vessels, so probably distant water, high seas vessels, um, but also the Chinese processing infrastructure. If you take those two things together and you think about um, seafood as a global product, huge amounts of it is either coming off of Chinese ships and or being processed in Chinese processing plants. So that was the goal was, well, let's look at that. And then it was even more attractive um, to us because China is also distinctly opaque. And so as an investigative shop, um, we were even more interested to see if we could add value by shining some light in that dark space. and uh, that's why we began heading out to sea and reporting on this about three, three and a half years ago.
0: So tell me about the team on the ground there in, uh, in China, because um, you just mentioned it, it is it's so opaque how the supply chain works, even to people in the seafood industry that are using it. Um, so how do they go about understanding the conditions in the factories? Um, What tools did they have at their disposal? And what was that process like, like for them? You
2: know, I'll often take two steps back to take three steps forward. So bear with me as I do that. Um, uh, Two steps back. We're talking about a series here that thus far has three large stories. The first story was a look at the on water concerns and opaqueness and human rights and illegal fishing um, related to the, the vessels on the water. Um, the reporting approach for that was distinct. It involved going to see you know, eight reporting trips. I do all the at sea reporting and actually getting on Chinese vessels and taking a look at the supply chain disconnects and the human rights issues and IUU issues. Um, the second story was a look at Shandong province and, quite specifically, a certain demographic of of workers in the processing plants there. Um, this was a look at Uyghur or Xinjiang workers. Um, and, um, you know, the the sort of ground game, if you will, there in Shandong province was difficult. Um, the, the, uh, we as an organization, the Apple OSHA project, um, have no uh, full-time salaried staff in China. Um, uh, so we have um, a lot of, folks that we hire on a contract basis for one investigation or for a specific job within investigation. When it came to um, looking at the the Shandong province uh, factories and trying to uh, investigate the presence of Xinjiang workers, which, to remind your listeners, are categorically defined as forced labor under U.S. law, um, and basically simply trying to see, are there Uyghurs, these, these type people, in these plants? That was a combination of um, direct sort of boots on the ground hires where we teamed up with investigators, some of whom I've known, you know, going back to my days at the New York Times, others that we met and vetted more recently. The, those folks on the ground um, were doing multiple things. One, they're helping us Um, connect the supply chain dots so when the fish comes out of the water or the squid in this case and it goes on a refrigeration vessel back to port, once it gets to port, the hardest link to make is moving it from the ship to the processing plant. You really probably need folks that are doing a follow the trucks type of reporting. They have eyes on site because otherwise it's hard using um, data or open source, you know, social media, videos or whatever to actually know whether this specific seafood got to this plant and that plant has weaker workers. So we had um, folks doing direct surveillance um, of the ports and following trucks to connect the dots to the plants. And then we also used tactics of um, and a large staff of Chinese, Chinese language folks to be helping us look through, um, you know thousands upon thousands of hours of social media posts. So these are videos on Duyan, which is the Chinese TikTok or Billy, which is like YouTube or WeChat or various platforms where a lot of average folk, you know, are putting up mundane sort of banal videos of themselves at work or at home or whatever, and mining that source, um, knowing how to do that and looking for evidence that would indicate the answer to your question, are there weavers in that plan? Um, so that's really what we did for that second story. And then the third story was a similar model, a little bit more difficult, but it was a turning of the lens to a different province, Leonin province up near the North Korean, over near the North Korean border, and looking at, are there there North Korean workers in the processing plants there in China? Because again, under US law, that demographic of workers categorically defined as forced labor. Um, And so similar sort of assembling of a team in, in various places, some folks in China, some folks in South Korea, folks in north korea a whole bunch of different folks that we use to piece together um the information that answers the question you know whether and which plants have north korean workers
0: so ian for those that haven't read this story and i recommend that that they do um tell us about some of the conditions in uh these factories that that your team found and that you found in your reporting
2: yeah, I mean, the, the common, So again, if you think of this in, in your head as, as a map and, and you're trying to keep track of all these Chinese names, Shandong province, this is a coastal province. It's on the far opposite side of the country from Xinjiang province, which is where Uyghurs are. Um, a bunch of the factories we were looking at were in Shandong province. The other huge cluster of factories were in Liaoning province. The workers to remember here are Uyghur Uyghur workers who are being transferred over 2,500 miles across the country by the state without any say as to whether they wanna go or not. This is forced labor transferred into Shandong province. Um, Those workers are largely male. Um, They are sent across the country uh, by order of the government. If they refuse that order, their families are often put in internment camps. Um, so the captivity and forced labor begins before they get on the bus or train or plane. Then when they're at the plants in Shandong province, you know, these are locked facilities. Those folks are kept under um, close watch. Um, those folks being the Uyghur workers. Um, they're not. There's not freedom of movement. There's not freedom of of um, speech. You know, the, these sorts of norms. These are law, you know, and, and again, anywhere you go, but China included... You know, seafood processing plant at work is hard work. These are long days and repetitive motions, um, uh, pretty grueling conditions. They live on site on the compounds. Um, then now move over to the workers in Liaoning province. These are the North Korean workers. Those are mostly women. They're also transferred by their state. In this case, North Korea transfers them into China in a cooperation with the Chinese government. Um, those women um, are, are sent into the factories. For many of the North Korean women, um, they're delighted to have the jobs because what they can earn is much higher salary than they ever could access back home. Um, They get sent in there. They're also kept in very locked down facilities, guards, you know, tall walls, barbed wire, the whole. Um, The conditions are even more brutal, um, A, because of the power dynamic of these being all women and transport labor. Um, So what we found was widespread sexual abuse, um, but also Um, very, very closely watched um, clusters of workers. Again, 20-hour days, 15-hour days, you know, um, some of them, you know, only get one day off a week, if that. um, uh, um, Reports of violence, you know, beatings of staff. Um, If they are allowed to leave uh, the compound, the North Korean women's here, here I'm talking about, these are on chaperoned trips to town. They're not allowed to talk to Chinese locals are not allowed to talk to reporters, obviously, or NGOs or anyone else. They're taken to to shop and get some stuff and then taken back to um, the facility. Uh, and in, in the case of the specific North Korean women that we dealt with, this is a COVID period. So things were even more tough because COVID locked the border. So some of these women expected to be you know, sent abroad for a year or two years. We're, locked, we're stuck there for upwards of four years. There are still some workers that are still in the country that we interviewed. Uh, still in China. Um, uh, so really, really brutal conditions.
0: Who owns these companies, uh, these processing companies? I, we Part of the investigation, part of the fallout for the seafood industry has been a, a lack of understanding or knowledge about who's actually processing uh, this fish for major companies. Um, who owns them? Well,
2: it's a, it's a huge industry. And so when you speak in general, generality, you're going to get stuff wrong, but in general, um, these companies are Chinese companies um, and they are in partnerships, supply chain partnerships with non-Chinese players. So Western, European, Canadian, American um, uh, companies. Now, um, to get a little more technical, um, you know, the, the companies that own um, the processing plants are sometimes mega companies like the Chisan group that own processing plants, they own cold storage facilities, they own refrigeration vessels, and they own fishing vessels. And they, so they have their tentacles, if you will, in lots of different parts of the supply chain. Um, other companies, Chinese companies, are um, partly state-owned, right? So China National Fisheries Corporation uh, owns processing plants and vessels and reefers. Um, it's a state run uh, company, so this is a different breed of institution than you or I are used to. Um, and then still others um, are partially owned uh, in, in a more formalized partnership with non Chinese um, players. So there's some uh, uh, buy in by Western players into a partial ownership um, of the companies to your second point what's not typically known and your column recently really said it better than i've seen said before um there there has been a willful ignorance by the beneficiaries of these supply chains where they may know in general that they have six plants that they're tied to in china but they don't probably know their names and they probably don't and they certainly don't most likely don't know the conditions in those plants. And they probably don't even know um, whether much of what they get from those plants is actually from those plants, because especially post-COVID, there there were problems in the supply chain where there were shortages of of tonnage, of a certain this or that, and spot markets emerged where if a certain Western buyer needed X amount of Y-type seafood, but the chinese processing plant couldn't produce that much then th- that chinese processing plant or the labor or the, the sort of spot market broker in the middle said okay we need to top up and so turn to other places to bring in some extra of that term, certain type of seafood so that we can fill this order on our deadline And there's a lot of that going on. If if you get people to be really candid with you about how things actually work in China, not only do we not have eyes into the plant and do Western buyers not know the name of the plant or what's going on in there, they actually don't really understand or care to keep track of how much of their product is coming from sources other than that plant, even though it's routed through their said plant.
0: But there are auditors on the the ground uh, or at least third-party auditors. And this is the part that, I think for for the seafood industry is um, is confusing, or um, maybe there is a bit of a tendency to say, "Well, this wasn't my fault; it was an auditor's fault." What's breaking down in the auditing process? You mentioned the Marine Stewardship Council, which, of course, is more focused on auditing the sustainability of the of the resource. However, there has to be a lot of, of failures along the way, and so why the auditors clearly need to be audited.
2: Yeah. So I think like, again, your, your audience, your listenership is uh, a much more savvy crowd, but just to take it, you know, they know all, all of this, but to take it to the average layman's understanding is to first say, okay, let's, let's divide the category of auditors into two types. There are those auditors who generally are looking at um, hygienic, and illegal fishing and ocean sustainability and marine issues and sort of um, uh, traceability concerns. Okay, that's one type of auditor. Marine Stewardship Council is the sort of big name in that universe. And then there are this other category of auditors um, that are social auditors, which is to say they focus on labor concerns. Okay, now um, there is overlap between these auditors and the audits they conduct. So for example, with Marine Services Council, they're quick to emphasize that they specialize um, in the marine issues, the sustainability issues, and they don't claim to do audits or have any say in the labor issues. However, if you look closely at what they do claim, that when they provide a clean bill of health to a brand, part of what they require for that, you know, report card with A's on it is a prerequisite um, social audit or external audit that verifies that the labor conditions have passed muster. So in their very in marine Stewardship Council's very labeling, and public face, they are overlapping Quite decidedly with social audit issues and claiming that to to get their approval there needs to be some labor external labor review. Okay, so that makes them a little bit on the hook here. Um, but um, let's not beat up just on MSC. So in general, the auditing industry, the players who actually do this work um, in the world, you know, whether it's you know bananas or or computer chips or or uh, t-shirts. Um, The 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 marine auditors are really focused on food safety and illegal fishing issues, and they have folks in the plants and they're checking in various ways that the supply chain, you know, the questions of do we know for sure that that fish is actually what it's being labeled as? Is that really tilapia? Um, Do we know what ship that came off of when it got here? Do we know that? the actual cargo that came from that ship and that refrigeration vessel and that's bound for walmart or tesco or whatever is um not being swapped out by stuff that came from someone else Um, these are the sorts of questions that they're asking and um there are lots of flaws even in that universe right Their claims to know that the stuff that they know what ship it came off of and whether that ship was actually not engaged in legal fishing are suspect. Um, And that's uh, something we we went sort of to great lengths to try to show where the gaps even in that claim is. Now on the labor side, those auditors, okay, now you have have to pause and think about China. Okay, so there are certain, the the sort of Faustian bargain that the industry has been making for a long time and many industries and many NGOs and newspapers and everyone else is if you go into China and are going to operate in China you have to play by their rules and there are certain unspoken and spoken rules of things you can't discuss things you can't do or else you're going to get kicked out of the country it's just an open secret and um, a lot of companies and industries and newspapers and everyone else NGOs and ocean advocates have decided to take that deal and they've gone in there but it comes at a cost such as you can't generally expect there may be exceptions but to do unannounced audits of a plant, show up unannounced and then ask questions. Do you have Uyghurs? Do you have North North Koreans? You you can't expect to do independent interviews with workers in a native language that they speak apart from authorities being in the room, whether the authorities are plant operators or law enforcement or security services. These are all things that just don't, generally speaking, um, fly in China. And God forbid you actually find problems. You're an auditor and you wanna do your job, of which there are many folks, and you're in China, and you find some really worrisome things, and you're gonna write up a report that says, hey, we've got child labor there, or we've got Uyghur labor there, we've got North Korean, and we've got women who haven't been allowed to go home, or we've got wage theft. Um, If you find those things and you write them up, you have another structural problem, as you, the auditor that works for SGS, or whoever you work for, when you hand that report over, remember that you're, you've been hired by the company that, that is sending you in there. So there's a sort of conflict of interest in the very design of the auditing structure where the people paying for them to do the service are the people that they're reporting on. So um, that's another problem that probably gives pause to whether you want to say something that's highly critical of the person who's paying your bill. And then furthermore, if you write that up, are you going to be able to go to that factory again? Or are you as auditors going to be kicked out because the Chinese authorities say you can't be saying that, you can't you can't be writing that up Um, and you're not going to get access after that. These are the huge existential problems that I think the industry is going to have to confront if they're really honestly wanting to figure out whether they can stay in China and if so, how they could possibly stay in China and not have another series like this in three years.
0: So talk to us a little bit about the reporting uh, process. I mean, you, you on the Outlaw uh, Ocean site, uh, you publish some of the exchanges with, with companies. Um, I'm curious about that process and what, what, surprised, uh, what surprised you, interested you about the process of how the seafood companies responded or how the retailers responded um, as these investigations rolled out?
2: Well, so the the process was one that we um, essentially decided at the outset of this investigation that we were going to try to abide by certain ground rules. One, we were not going to go off record with um, these companies. We were not going to engage in um, ex parte conversations, if you will. Um, So we were going to try to be in um, writing and on record at all times, so that we could then put it all up on a searchable website, um, the discussion tab. And that was a huge undertaking. Two of my 10 staff just work on that, you know. And, but it, it was really a valuable experiment be, for a bunch of reasons, which I'll go into. But essentially, so that meant reaching out to, I think, what's over 250 different companies, NGOs, state agencies, federal agencies and asking, saying, look, here's what we found, here's how we found it, um, and here are our questions for you. The vast majority of um, those interlocutors um, just downwalled us you know, um, and refused to engage at all, just never replied, um, uh, which wasn't shocking, it was very frustrating. And some of the biggest players, even to this day, um, biggest brands, biggest seafood companies, biggest grocery store chains have um, continued to simply not answer any questions. Um, and that's a sort of duck and, as, as I see it, it's a duck and cover. If you can wait these guys out, these journalists out, they'll go away. Um, uh, don't engage and just keep, you know, doing what we're doing. And they may be right, you know, that, that has worked um, a lot. Um, uh, but the, one of the reasons we did the discussion approach was so that we um, we could be super transparent and we might be able to encourage other media industry press, for example, to um, look at our work, you know, show our math, you know, um, look at what we said, look at what they said back um, look at um, who didn't reply because the industry folks are taken much more seriously. You, for example, are taken way more seriously by the people listening to this than me because investors and Industry folks, you know, um, buyers and everyone else read very closely what you're producing, not as much the New Yorker, you know. um, And so uh, if we could lay out all these exchanges in a way that other journalists trusted them, then um, we could get other folks to continue on the story. And then the duck and cover approach doesn't work as well because it's not going away because the deep reporters like you folks who really are experts are going to stay with it. So that was an experiment and it worked. You know, the industry folks, uh, venues began using that um, in a really smart way and picking up on things. Um, what I did, the only other thing I'll say on this is that was a little surprise, a, a pleasant one, was uh, whatever was the portion of folks that stonewalled us when we published the first 10,000 word story was less than when we published the second story and even less than when we published the third. So because of the industry press following up and really rigorously asking tough questions, um, because of lawmakers and NGOs and all sorts of other stakeholders running with the reporting, I think the industry players realized this isn't going away like most other stories do, and they began engaging. And so on this last round published this week on North Korean workers, we got a lot more engagement from companies. Um, Some companies, and not without reason, said, look, we want to talk with you, but we're not willing to do so on record. And I get why. They want to have a conversation where they could just be candid and safe and show their vulnerabilities um, and get our input. But I don't think that's actually in the service of the public. And so that's why we said, sorry, we, we simply can't do that. So we need to stay on record. We need to stay in writing and and um, you have to make a decision as to whether you, you're willing to have that be open um, discussion for the public to see after we publish all of our back and forth.
0: And I, I think that's a that's a source of frustration for some of the companies, right, that, um, that we've heard uh, from uh, some of the folks that are our readers is, hey, look, we were transparent. We answered the questions. Uh, we went on record. And now we're the ones... Whose heads above the parapet and all these other companies, you know, not all 250 of these companies will get phone calls either from us or you. Um, So what do you say to that, uh, uh, to, to, to those folks that in good faith really tried to engage here?
2: Yeah. Unequivocally they are right. Like it is, I completely sympathize. I don't know that I have a solution, but they are not wrong. In that point, it's somewhat uh, the nature of journalism. Um, you know, um, here's what I would say: I, I, I try whenever I'm asked. I did this in the congressional testimony. I'm doing it here. I, I try to be honest and open about that fact and say: Trident, Luns, Panepesca. These are players that um, did exactly what you said they were very open and candid and um, honest about um, uh, what we brought to them. Uh, And that meant that there was more attention paid to them than Walmart or initially Cisco, who for example, would not um, engage. And I don't think that's fair, but at the same time, um, I think with time, you and me and others who know this reporting and know the backstory, will actually um, commend, like we are here, hopefully, those companies that have been leaders in the pack, even when it comes to the painful reckoning of having to stick their head above the parapet. They are out front, and the folks who are hiding and staying behind are probably not gonna be able to stay there for very long. That's that's the hope I have, but yeah. Other than that, I don't know what to say. If the if the suggestion in the complaint is therefore, Ian, you should be willing to go off record and engage with us in a safe space that is confidential, then I say ah, that's where we part company. I don't agree. Having done this a long time, I don't actually think it's in the public interest, nor even in the company's interest, for us to engage in that, because all too often that is just an attempt by the company to sort of information gather from the reporter and damage control internally and figure out what they can do, but they don't really feel the pressure um, that the public brings if it's all made open uh, and clear on a discussion tab. To,
0: to what extent do you think that um that companies that you talked to were were truly ignorant about what happens with their uh, products in in China when they're processed?
2: I think they were truly ignorant and not. So I think they were truly ignorant in the sense that I don't think many of these, and I talked to a couple of lawyers who actually counsel seafood industry on forced labor issues, and they said the same, which is that many of these folks had never heard the term Weaver or Xinjiang. They didn't even know what the issue meant. They didn't really even understand the distinction between forced labor in the fashion of you have a person who's chained, who's in a textile plant in Bangladesh and the doors are chained versus forced labor in a categorical like prison labor, child labor, Uyghur labor, North Korean labor. These are categorical forced labors where even if you interview the person, Hey, this person's 12, but I just interviewed them and she says she's getting paid well and she's really happy to have the job and she's really thrilled. That doesn't matter. She's 12. She's a child laborer, you know. So there are categorical forced labor, and there's forced labor where they are unhappy workers who are having wage that they're different. I don't think the industry even understood those distinctions, for example. And I don't think that they really, as you in a column said, understood the reality of what can and can't be done in terms of true audits or not in their factories. I think a lot of them don't even know really the names of, and locations and how things work in their factories. Again, try to learn. some of these companies have way better knowledge um, of these things because they've made efforts long before I came knocking um, to, to, to do this. But most of the industry, I don't think knows much, like your column pointed out, the names of the plants, what's going on in the plants, who actually works there, what do the audits audits mean, and what do they not actually tell you. Um, I don't think they know those things. Now, that's what they don't know. What they do know is this. The industry knows that if you're going into China, China's a pretty repressive, opaque place, and some dark stuff happens there. And they know that it's also a place where journalists and NGOs can't check into them. And so... We, in the sort of watchdog space, have very little ability to check the merit of their MSC claims or their social audit claims in China, because we can't get in. We can't do anything in there. So And they know that. And, and if they claim they didn't know that China was those things, then that is where I don't believe them. They knew a lot of the Faustian bargain that they were taking when they go into China and they say, look, but the savings are incredible. The efficiency is incredible. The red tape is much less than we have to deal with in the U.S. And they made a decision to go in there with some risk.
0: So is is sort of one of the overarching points you think of your series that companies can't, that no companies dealing with Chinese processors can really count on their their seafood being produced in a uh in a fair uh and what we would consider in the western world a, a fair and, and legal way or are there companies on the ground in china that you think and that your team thinks is doing the right thing
2: i probably would side set the framing of that question just a little bit not because i'm being coy but just because i don't think it um gives me the multiple choice options i need to answer honestly i think um what do i think i think that there's it's very difficult for companies of any industry to do business in China in a way in which they can know for sure that they're not tied to things that may be illegal or unethical, be it environmental or human rights, um, because China is a very tough place to ask certain questions. Um, so uh, do I think that that means that there are no seafood companies operating in china in an ethical way no i'm not saying that at all i don't have the proof to say that and i don't have the instinct intuition that that would be true but do i think that there's a big challenge in verifying that you as an ethical ceo know what's happening in china in all these categories food safety and you know environmental standards um no i don't uh and I think that your point of going to the audits, that is a that's really where it's at. It's not as interesting, it's sort of dry topic, but what is the industry that has emerged to ostensibly check some of those issues um, and provide reassurance to CEOs or to consumers? And and are they selling a false bill of goods? Um yeah, I, I think that not a not entirely. But I think that they are overselling uh, a confidence level than is possible in a place like China. Do I think that other countries, Cambodia, Vietnam, you know, lots of companies, countries outside of China have similar problems? For sure. You know, the auditing um, system and companies working in in places um, outside of China have lots of similar problems. You You read about them all the time.
0: So, Ian, when when you were finished with all your reporting on this third uh, story here, what questions did you still have? What don't you still know that you want and need to know about uh, of seafood processing in China?
2: I mean, well, a lot of my questions are a sort of tragedy, small t tragedy, I feel embedded in the reporting, which is... I think that all the discussion is focused on the easier end of the, of the supply chain, which is the onland stuff. And what's gotten overlooked is the offshore stuff. So what's happening on the vessels themselves is still, I mean, been working on that since 2014 and all of the discussion now is about what's happening in the processing plants. And there's very little discussion happening about, you know, How are we going to create an oversight, regulatory, governmental, market-based auditing certification system that can reassure all of us that bad stuff isn't happening on or by the vessels? Well, that's still the question that we're seeing the least progress on, um, because it's so tough. So that is one huge realm of questions that I haven't seen pushed enough. All the focus has been on the easier categorical stuff, Uyghurs, North Koreans, um, and those aren't easy, <laughs> um, but it's focused there. I think there are lots of other categories, Tibetan labor, prison labor, child labor. I mean, just run the gamut and ask the question, like, do we know there aren't those in that plant? Um, and and then chase it down. We didn't touch those. Um, those other sorts of categorical worries that you might have in a place like China, um, and then the, the the other non-labor human rights issue is the supply chain traceability questions. Of you know, there are these claims through the certification bodies like MSC or Aquaculture Stewardship Council that they are providing reassurance assurance that we know the bouncing ball from dot to dot to dot of the handoff of seafood from bait to plate is real. But if you really, really hover that camera, the slow motion camera over the bouncing ball, there are these invisible moments in the many handoffs that make you wonder about the legitimacy of those reassurances. Like it came from these ships, but it know some one small example you know well is like company x says we know that we get our stuff only from these six vessels but then if you actually go look at it those six vessels are handing all their stuff off to a refrigeration vessel and if you look at the nitty-gritty on how they actually bundle the the stuff together whether it's pollock or squid or tuna or whatever how they bundle the stuff together and then hand it over to the refrigeration vessel. And then it gets handed over to the truck and port, and then it gets handed over to the processing plant. There are a lot of gaps there where it becomes less believable that they even know what vessels those came off of. And there may be 12 other vessels that are funneling into their supply chain. And those 12 invisible vessels are doing lots of dark stuff, captive labor or invading other countries' waters or whatever. And so that's a whole non human rights issue that i also still think there needs to be a lot of questions asked
0: so let's put ourselves in the in the shoes of a of a seafood buyer or processor and i truly have concern about what i've read in these stories i truly have concerns uh about uh the uh, the companies i'm working with in in china now if i drop a supplier Have I actually really solved anything beyond kind of absolving myself of the guilt of that particular supplier? And part one of that question and part two of that question, then what should seafood companies be doing in the face of all this?
2: Yeah, so my answer humbly to the first question is no. I think it's a good start. You're doing a lot better than your peers um, by at least taking the first action of, kind of triaging the wound, right? Um, But you're not actually getting to the source harm, the disease, you know, the root cause. And the root cause isn't located at that one plant. It's located at the mechanisms you thought were preventing you from getting ill in the first place. Sorry to push this (laughs) metaphor. But um, so if a company says, okay, we've severed ties with this one plant, the questions I would ask are, well, wait, how many other plants do you have in China and what are you doing to check that they don't have the same problem that we were able to identify in this one plant? We don't have access to your supply chain. So we had to do this over four years and all sorts of crazy tactics to get a little window into your supply chain against your wishes. You have access to your supply chain and you have leverage over your partners who you're making money with. So no one better than you to be able to actually like look at, How many total plans do we have and what are the core problems that caused us to overlook this issue in the first place? So, yes, I'd say severing one relationship is not going to solve it. Um, What should they be doing? Just that, you know, a a real reckoning with the the cause of the oversight and looking at how is auditing, whether we're doing it in-house or we're using some external firm, flawed. What questions are they not asking? What questions should they be asking? And can they even ask those questions in this political climate, in this security climate that is this country? Um, and how do we need to rewrite the rules of that if we want to stay? That That's what I would say.
0: Rachel, any final thoughts or questions for Ian?
1: I guess just uh, where do you go next, Ian, in terms of is this kind of something where we're going to see updates every you know, a couple weeks or months, I know you update the conversations, but is it a project where you want to keep that uh, transparency going in terms of the stakeholder discussions um, and pushing the issue in Congress?
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, Rachel, your coverage has been great. And, and again, I can't thank through you and Rachel and, you know, kind of your publication for really doing good journalism alongside. Um, I think to answer your question, Rachel, methodologically will continue. So the things that we thought were really helpful and effective in this project. So the bait to plate tool on the website is an attempt at connecting the supply chain dots from start all the way to the brand name that folks know. And that takes a lot of effort and it's very, very complicated, but it's really valuable um, if you want to, equip the public and law enforcement and companies to do something here. You've got to connect those dots or else it's just another sob story about something bad that happened in one isolated place. It doesn't connect to the buyers. So we're going to keep doing that as best we can for every story. The discussion uh, thing tool tab um, is also probably something we're going to double down on. And we have another investigation coming on a different topic, different country, um, but we're doing it for that there too, because I think it really does help. Um, empower other reporters to check our work and decide if they want to continue uh, on with us. And and, and then the um, solutions thing we built is my humble attempt to not just be a bummer, you know, like saying all oh, that's bad, but not offering any insight on what could be fixed and how. I don't think it's my role to offer the specific solutions, but there are a lot of smart people. I don't have to agree with any of them. It doesn't matter, but academics and advocates and and industry experts like you guys and other reporters, and so with the solutions tab on the website, we try to report that out and sort of say, okay, what do these folks say should be done, and what do those folks say, and put it all in one place so that when folks ask us that question, we can say, okay, listen to what we collected from the experts on that issue. We're not going to give you our answer because we don't really deserve to be answering that um, we can just tell you what we definitely know is broken um, so those three things I think we're gonna keep going and and then you know the general topics of these categories of concerns whether they're China tied or not China tied China's such a big player that they pop up in every story um, but uh, so I, I don't think we'll cover this as a beat we might have one more story in big story in this series we're still deciding um, but those tools and that approach, And those issues will
0: remain the same. Well, thanks again so much for joining us, Ian. Thanks, Jim. Folks, that will wrap up this episode of the IntraFish podcast. Remember that you can find our coverage 24-7 on IntraFish.com. You can sign up for our newsletters there. If you're a subscriber, you can get alerts on all the topics that matter to you. And don't forget, we also have an app and a podcast, which you're listening to, don't forget to subscribe so that every time we put out a new podcast, it'll get pushed directly to your phone. All right, folks. Thanks again. We'll talk to you next week.